50 tractor trailers worth of equipment and medical supplies full and will go out to save lives around the world. With her $20 and she took communal transport for three days to travel down to our hospital. And that the practitioners were high-fiving each other and doing little dances while all of the women were snoring on the tables around them. And that was a beautiful moment. Welcome to Nonprofit Tangent. I'm Bill. Should I call it the medical episode, the healthcare episode? What about health and healing? Health and oh. healing. I'm writing that down. Where's my pen? Because it's so much more about healthcare. <laughs> it's like healing care. It's, yeah, I like that. It's good. Just to really quickly introduce yourselves. So I've been a critical care nurse for about a decade, which still blows my mind sometimes. Um, and I started Purses for Nurses about five years ago, which is a nonprofit that funds volunteer nursing trips to developing countries by selling and recycling your used purses. If someone was screaming for Dr. Alexander, we have an emergency, what do they, what do they need help with? So I just graduated from medical school. I'm going to be an internist. Uh, so I might be working in an intensive care unit. Um, you can see me on the wards helping patients from anything from an infection to a bad cough like I have today. <laughs> um, so that's, that's probably why they'd be calling me. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a quick bone to pick with uh, Melissa because I posted an Instagram picture, and I'm going to look at you, Brandon. I posted an Instagram picture um, from an episode I did in December um, on the environment, and it was me and two other guys in the picture, and Melissa commented on the picture, two of my favorite guys. It was Amir and <gasps> Bill... Um, Oh my God, I love them. Bill, Bill Levy from Bill Mako. Bill Levy, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, they are two of my favorite guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, it took me a minute to figure out like, oh, oh she said, no, nah, I'm not one of the favorites. So there's three of us. <laughs> she immediately said two of my favorite guys. I love guys. you, Bill. <laughs> I should have said two of yeah. my favorite guys from CSI in environmental work. And but they are. <laughs> and Bill. And Bill. Um, cool. Wow, that was really foul of me. So this episode, we're going to have three medical nonprofits. Um, one is going to be an organization that redirects supplies for, that are being thrown away or uh, not being used in American hospitals to um, developing healthcare systems. Uh, an organization that started its own hospital in Africa and an organization that looks um, beyond the sort of just hard science of medicine to treat patients in a more holistic way. So let's get right into that with the first interview. with Leah Burke, who is the Northeast Regional Director for MedShare. So let's get right into it. How did, how did MedShare get started? MedShare just celebrated our 20th birthday. We were founded in 1998 in Atlanta, Georgia by A.B. Short and Bob Freeman, and they were involved in the Atlanta Food Bank and in looking at 
um, food waste, similar to here in the tri-state area, how we have organizations like City Harvest. They wanted to make sure that food that was perfectly usable was going to hungry people instead of getting thrown away. And as they were involved in that, they started looking at other models to replicate where things wouldn't go to waste. And when they did that, they found that the health industry was another area where there was surplus that could be diverted from landfill and sent to people in need around the world. So initially, they looked at it from a standpoint of just meeting a need and making sure that things weren't going to waste. And it blew up. It grew exponentially over the course of 20 years. And in 20 years, we actually just looked at all of our impact recently. Um, It's been $220 million of aid that's been donated worldwide. We've served 103 countries, equipped 815,000 healthcare professionals, treated 20 million patients, trained 7,000 biomedical engineers, and engaged 20,000 volunteers. Whoa. In 20 years. Wow, that's amazing. We just had a huge, um, I guess I'll call it a milestone. There's another nonprofit organization that works a lot with biomedical equipment that was closing their doors, and we've partnered with them for a long time. And they reached out to us to see if there was a way for us to sort of absorb them. And so we were able to, at the end of 2018, acquire. $3 million of biomedical equipment and surplus medical supplies wow. for us to now distribute. So it was fi- just to give like, the metric of what that is, it's 50 tractor trailers worth wow. of equipment and medical supplies that were diverted from landfills that were usable for other people mm-hmm. and will go out to save lives around the world. That's amazing. So one of the things that you were that we were talking about a little bit earlier about um, was you mentioned um, a really interesting program that I guess has come also out of this, which is the Clean Birthing Kit. What is the what's the story behind the Clean Birthing Kit? So a dear friend of mine had twins, um, and they were born three months premature, and they were they were tiny, and it happened really fast. And because she lives in New York City, where we have our choice of you know, the greatest hospitals in the world, you know, just which, which one am I going to go to? Cause I can walk into any one of them. Mm-hmm. She delivered at Lenox Hill and her babies, they're turning three and they're totally normal, vivacious, like fantastic adjusted three-year-olds. And she's pregnant again. And when I joined the team at MedShare a year ago and I went to talk to Evan Armstrong, who's our biomedical engineering head, he started telling me a story of, a premature baby that was born in a facility that didn't have incubators. So they put the baby under a light bulb to keep it warm because that was the closest thing that they had. Just the difference between three children, right? This pair of twins and then this baby, they don't get to pick where they're born in the world. It's just where they happen to come in and start. And these babies were in the NICU at Lenox Hill Hospital for 30 days and are totally normal. And this other baby, all the, the only resource that they had for this baby was a light bulb. And 
You know, it's yeah. just a terrible, I think, disparity in terms of access to, to health. And then that goes into even some of our, I would say also some of the, our clean birthing kit initiative that we do where we know that there are women who don't even have a hospital to go to to have a baby, let alone getting somewhere where there's a light bulb. Right. Or again, here in the States, we, you know, women, oh, where are you going to deliver? You know, let alone. Right. They're, they're delivering at home or in a place that's not sanitary. So we started this clean birthing kit initiative and that is a simple kit that volunteers assemble with donated product that we get from our partners. And our goal is to send a hundred thousand of them out through our 2 million mothers initiative. And it's a Ziploc bag that has things in it like a baby hat, a receiving blanket, a cord clamp, booties, a newborn diaper. And we ship them to developing countries and women get to pick one up when they come into, you know, have maybe the one exam that they have their entire pregnancy. And we know that that bag has the potential to save two lives out of the mother and the baby. How did that get started? When we found out about this tremendous need and the, that there was almost an, an, it is, it is an epidemic of infant birth within the first 24 hours of babies being born in developing countries because of instances like, for example, someone and, you know, we realized that that was an area and it's interesting in the 20 years that MedShare has existed, we started out with sending, you know, four shipping containers of surplus medical supplies and biomedical equipment. And then we pride ourselves on listening to the communities where we work and seeing what the need is. And as we started hearing these stories of, you know, 2 million mothers who lose their baby in the first, you know, two days of the baby being alive for totally preventable, basic things that, you know, are in stacks in hospitals here. Right. So it's part of our effort is, you know, we, we want to eradicate that. Of course. And it's something that's completely, for the most part, completely preventable. I mean, of course there will be those few instances where, you know, something happens in, during childbirth, but it seems like it's a, a little bit of effort in some ways it's a little bit of effort which can have a huge impact mm-hmm. that's what it sounds like such a small thing and what's amazing actually a month after I joined MedShare we had a project with one of our big partners for International Women's Day they did clean birthing kit projects all across the country so what they can do is bring volunteers into conference rooms we just had one the other day at at Turner at CNN in Columbus Circle where people don't even leave the office. They come down to the conference room and the company has made a donation to help us cover, you know, supply cost. And what we'll do is assemble clean birthing kits. And we had 77 Turner volunteers assemble over 500 kits in two and a half hours. So that's a thousand lives that are potentially saved by under a hundred volunteers in two hours, two and a half hours of volunteer time. But when I went to this event last year, there was a female attorney who had just come back from maternity leave, you know, to her office overlooking, you know, Times Square in Manhattan. And she started getting teary eyed as she was assembling the kit because she said, you know, I can't believe, you know, I just gave birth at New York, at New York Presbyterian, like at Weill Cornell. And I had a baby 
you know, three and a half months ago. And there's so much that you just take for granted. You don't realize it. And she pulled her phone out and she made a donation to MedShare while she was standing there because she was just so moved by the thought that her being a new mom and knowing that there are other new moms out there that have that experience where they quite literally don't have the, a receiving blanket or a, a mat to put down to give birth so that they're not giving birth on the dirt floor. Mm. It just, it's really, when you think about how much we have here and just the disparity. So yeah, tell me a little bit about some of the people in the hospitals and, and partners you have worked with here in, uh, in the city. Sure. So one of our largest supporters from the beginning has been Northwell Health, and they support us in so many different ways. We started doing pickups from them, which is where we go and we pick up anything from biomedical equipment to surplus supplies. Um, and they just call you up and say, like, oh, you know what, we're getting rid of some stuff, you want to come by? Okay. Yes. And we'll, we go out there and we'll take whatever they have, and that's a regular um, support that they give to us. And we actually, the way that it started, there's a woman who's actually a member of Medsure's board now, Donna Drummond, who needed to find a way to give away their unused medical supplies. And she is a supply chain manager and came across us and decided that we would be a good partner for them. And that's been, you know, years upon years of partnership. But not only do they support us, you know, every day in our work and helping our programs, but last year when we had to support a number of natural disasters and respond to them, we worked with Northwell for them to do their own collection of additional pallets of water, of supplies and extra items that we were then able to take directly to Puerto Rico and get to people who were desperately in need of supplies and of quality care. And it's interesting, it's a good way of looking at sort of the process from an individual standpoint and the impact of MedShare because we have Donna Drummond who is here on Long Island at Northwell Health and you know knows MedShare, organizes through staff at Northwell, which so many of them know MedShare. I mean, you most people at Northwell know of us and support us. So they do this drive. A number of volunteers got involved. And then those supplies made their way to Puerto Rico. And someone who sits on our council in the Southeast, a doctor, Dr. Carla Hack, she grew up in Puerto Rico and she's done over 10 mission trips to personally go and administer care to people in Puerto Rico with supplies that came here from New York through Atlanta and helped to treat people who are still responding to that disaster. And it's just such an amazing thing when you realize that those are just medical supplies that were sitting in a warehouse on Long Island Mm -hmm. and ended up as part of treatment and care for people in Puerto Rico. Right. Uh, I mean, it actually brings up so many interesting questions like, well, I I call my own questions interesting, but here we go. Um, I just imagine the medical field is so scientific now with so many things going on. Do you ever get like something and you're like, does anyone even know what this piece of equipment does? (laughs) Like, I mean... I, is there, I can't even imagine that one person can really know, you know, every piece of equipment that you might get. Well, I will say Evan Armstrong is pretty 
miraculous in terms of what he does know. But the way that it works is when we get a request and they call us. So my colleague, our Northeast Director of Operations, Jim White, a hospital will reach out to him. Generally, hospitals we have partnerships with, but sometimes it'll be a new partner. And they'll say, you know, I have this thing, XYZ, that we're replacing you know, would you be interested in coming to get it? And the first step in that is that he'll go do an evaluation of the piece of equipment or he'll ask for a picture of it, depending what it is. And then we'll send it to Eben and to our biomed team and they'll let us know if it is in fact something that we can use. And more often than not, it is. But one of the things that is important for us is that we as an organization work in a push-pull model and we don't push things onto our partners. We want to make sure that anything that we're sending is something they need, mm. so they pull from us. So we work together to make sure that our partners are getting the things that they actually need versus us saying, hey, you know, a partner gave us this and we really can't say no, so we're going to ship this, you know, archaic piece of equipment to you. Um, you know, and our partners understand when, you know, they're calling us because they want to divert something from being wasted. Right. And most of the time it can be. Right, so. right. Thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me. Thank you. Cool. So that, yeah, what did you um, what do you think of MedShare? Is there a lot of waste you in your experiences in hospitals? Do you oh, see a lot yeah, of waste? Yes. It's like stupid the amount of waste. Um, that's probably the thing that struck me most is when listening to her talk about MedShare and how they have acquired all of this equipment, all of these supplies, it's something that Persis for Nurses has looked into doing in the five years that we've been operating. And I'm actually really interested in meeting her now because she sounds <laughs> awesome and um, this company sounds awesome. And I've actually heard of these clean birthing kits, but I didn't know who they were associated with. And I've been a nurse for about a decade and I've seen a stupid amount of, of waste. I mean, in order to keep things sterile and clean and always use a new thing for every patient and to never use anything that's expired or anything that's like maybe was opened the wrong way or it's just, it's insane. Like the amount of stuff that gets thrown in the trash. Yeah. Yeah. In the trash, like not recycled, not repurposed, not sterilized in the trash. Right. Yeah. And things that things that aren't even expired, things that are brand new that maybe you brought into a patient room. And yeah. you're like, well, I didn't use this, and so what do yeah. I do with it? I can't use it it's on someone else. Quote unquote contaminated. Right. And now it has to be tossed. Right. Sometimes it's like closed up packages of things that they brought in three kits to do one procedure and then the other two kits never got opened and now they're contaminated. So and in reality, like you could sterilize the packaging with, you know, bleach wipes or whatever, and it would be fine to use again for anybody. But they don't because liability. <laughs> Did anything stick out to you in that interview? Anything that kind of strike you about what she was talking about? Yeah, I would say when I was hearing about the uh, clean birth and kids, what struck me so much was the simplicity of them. Yeah. Um, and I think what, what really struck me was obviously what's in the kits, but the fact that they're tied together in a plastic in a Ziploc bag. Um, I thought that was really powerful. Uh, this is such a simple thing that you could do. This is a, this is a block bag. It's an everyday item, but like the hats, the blankets, those are such simple things that can make such an impact. I wonder if they would want to replace those Ziploc bags with purses. <laughs> because I can make that happen. <laughs> the fanciest uh, birthing kits. I mean, at least they'd be reusable then and it wouldn't be plastic, right? That's true. Like it's yeah. something that's already 
being repurposed. And we've actually considered doing that. It's something we're looking at pivoting into in the next year. So mm. it's not out of the realm. And then they would have something that they could reuse to carry their baby supplies or whatever it may be. You know, it's not like plastic bags are not the most eco-friendly way to, to transport supplies, but I get that it's cheap. Did anything stick out in the interview to you? Anything jump out of you? I think she said 20 million people at the no, 200 million people at the end of 20 years have been touched by their products um, and their, their, I think she said 200 million patients. Whatever it was, it was CEO. a big number with a lot of zeros. It yeah, was a crazy sure. big number. Um, and yeah, I, wow, just such a tiny thing, like, mm-hmm. re, like diverting waste from major institutions. I mean, that's something that was so inspiring to me and starting Purses for Nurses as well was how can we take all the waste that our country develops, which is a stupid amount of waste, and turn it into something useful? Mm-hmm. How can we take something that's just being thrown in the trash and change lives with it? And I've seen other organizations do it, like with plastic bottles being used for insulation or um, plastic bottles being turned into shoes or um, computers being recycled and given to children in need for learning purposes. Um, just like Robert from Rescuing Leftover Cuisine. Yeah, didn't I introduce you to him? I, I met him before you introduced me to him. Are you introduced? Not to take it away from you, but... Oh, uh, <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, it's, it's, um, it's very cool that you and these other organizations manage to do within one mission multiple things. I think even hospitals, like it's going to reach a point where because they're corporations, even though they're nonprofits. Yeah, they're, you know, hospitals and they're helping people, but if somebody found out, like if a media outlet got a hold of the information of how much they actually waste, someone tracked that through the whole system and saw how much was getting thrown in the trash and the huge environmental impact of hospitals, people might start thinking twice. Absolutely. Or they might prefer the hospital that's eco-friendly. I don't know. Like... (laughs) Yeah, I would say, at least when I'm looking for a product, I like hearing the story behind it. I like hearing that my money is going to go to more than just lining the pockets of whoever's making the product, right? Totally. So, well, is there any trend at all in the medical profession to say like, oh, we're going to make our, we're going to recycle these things, or we're going to be a little bit more, we're going to lower our, um, what's it, no, shrink our environmental footprint, or is it just kind Are of you like, no, I was saying a little, a little, like the pulse oxes. I know they started recycling those. Um, and I know they have a pulse ox is a little um, it's like a little sensor that goes on your finger kind of like a band-aid and it monitors monitors your oxygenation okay um, and I know for a period of time we were all just throwing those in the trash because we had no idea and then someone did an in-service and said like hey we actually recycle the parts that are in these and they can be used for new pulse oximeters um, but like well, something, tubing, like nah. something I've seen especially about residencies and this was this was a big part of a lot of the interviews that I went on, is uh, quality improvement programs within the residencies, which is just looking at what is the residency doing, where you know where are some of the deficiencies in terms of like what the hospital is doing, and and how can how can you start making changes from you know your first year in residency and beyond, um, and so there's a lot of like new dedicated tracks to that, and I wonder yeah. if that would also help kind of change the way that we <clears throat> deal with waste or. You know, look at these inefficiencies in hospitals. So they're actually like encouraging you to think about how you can help the hospital. I mean, granted, they're concerned about their bottom line, right? Like they're concerned about getting all the people to come to their hospital, and like they want to be the top in the county and the state and the world. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Like that's not something I've experienced in nursing yet. Like we get it on a very 
like nurses get it kind of we're like the bottom rung even though we're like patient facing we get everything coming down from the top um but yeah and I, I think there's also then the issue of it's biohazard right like a lot of the things we're using have come in contact with body fluids or blood or you know they're contaminated in such a way that they have to be treated in a special way in order to be reused um they have to be sterilized again basically like if we're going to recycle plastics from tubing or whatever it is there's that extra step that comes into play it's not just like run it through a plant and it's i mean i don't know maybe they sterilize things in plants maybe we should talk to someone about that i don't know but yeah so on every podcast i try to feature the music of a local musician oh yeah i haven't connected with the musician yet but they will be guaranteed to have music between these segments so i just want to shout out whoever the musician is go if you like the music check it out on the on the page um i'll be linking their stuff everywhere uh, and i'm so happy that they agreed to do it um even though i haven't actually connected with yet? them yet <laughs> you're allowed to say who it is i don't know who it is <laughs> oh, you don't i don't know. actually have a musician yet oh. but i will whoever it is if you like the music which i'm sure you will definitely check out their stuff this, this next interview is really cool because it's really just one big story. Okay, so I'm here with Toby Tanza. Yeah, tell me a little bit about Shoe for Africa, and then we're going to get into hearing about the hospital. A long time ago, I went to Kenya. I only went there because the world's best runners come from Kenya. So a friend of mine, an Irish Olympian, told me, come to Kenya with me. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. So <laughs> he said, I know every single person in town. So I made this holiday to go, and all my friends were like, oh, you're crazy, going to remember the Kenyans, they're too fast, blah, blah, blah. One week before we were going to fly, I was in Sweden, he was in Ireland, and I got a telephone call from him. And he said, have a nice time in Kenya, bye-bye, and put down the phone. And when I arrived in Kenya, my luggage didn't arrive either, my three bags. And I was like, oh, this is a disaster trip, because <laughs> all my Kenyan friends had told me, you know, there's no running stores over there, you can't get equipment, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, I'm here for a six-week holiday with no running shoes. But I decided, before I go back to Sweden, let me just go for one run in Kenya. So I ran in my street clothes, which uh, I, I got a lot of heckling and teasing as I ran down the street. Right. They were not used to seeing uh, a foreigner with a red face run down the street right. in his street clothes. And they're like, what are you doing? And they thought <laughs> I was running for these cheap uh, taxi buses. So the taxi buses kept on stopping for me. So I was really, really suffering. I was looking at my watch and runners, you tend to say, okay, it's not a run unless it's at least 40 minutes. So I told myself I have to run for 40 minutes. I ran for 20 minutes. I was just about to turn around to go back. And I ran into the national team by pure coincidence. And I just jumped on the back of them and I started running with them because misery loves company and I was getting fed up of all the teasing. Which national team? The national team of the Kenyans. Kenyans, okay. The best runners in the world, right. literally. And I ran for another couple of kilometers with them. And they sat down, we were drinking tea, and they were saying, why don't you come and train with us? And I was like, great idea. <laughs> I stayed for six, almost seven months, over six months uh, on that first trip because I had such a fantastic time. So every single day I was running with world champions and Olympic champions and learning so much. Wow. But out of the corner of my eye, I kept on seeing problems. And I kept on seeing problems that I felt that I could solve. And I suddenly realized maybe I'd come to Kenya to run, but I was leaving as somebody who just wanted to make change in the communities that I saw. Mm. And that's actually how I got into philanthropy. Okay. 
So, and when was that again? That was in 1995, in November. Fa- we're going to fast forward to building a children's hospital. So, um, when did that start? That happened, uh, I can actually tell you the exact date. It was St. Patrick's Day, 17th of March, 19- 2008. Right. And what happened was I was living in Kenya at this time, and in November, December, and January before then, there was some political problems in the country. It was leading up to the elections, and then the elections came out, and it was uh, you know undecided vote. And the country had a near civil war. And like you had in Rwanda with the Hutsis and the Tutsis, there were two tribes in Kenya, two major tribes that were fighting against each other. And I was in the area where kind of the rebels lived. A lot of shops were being burned and stores were being burnt down too. I remember one day we were sitting there just having a meal and the television stopped. You know, the television was just showing news every, every, like, every other day because there'd been a news blackout. They'd thrown all the journalists out of the country and there was a complete media blackout. But there was this report that the church had been uh, set fire and the church was only 18 miles down the road from where we were staying. And a reported 35 to 50 women and children were caught inside the church and burnt alive. I went to look at the church and it was a terrible, terrible... It was the size of maybe two tennis courts mm-hmm. and the field hadn't really been cleaned up. The wall was burnt to about hip height, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of debris on the, the ground, like bones burnt and you know, charred shoes and charred pieces of clothing. And a man was telling us about what happened. He said, if you really want to understand, talk to a lady because she was inside the church. And I was like, I didn't even notice. At where the altar was, there was this lady just kneeling down, crying. So I went over and I talked to her. And she was praying for her daughter because her daughter had been killed in the fire. So I said, you know, if you don't mind, can you just try? I'm trying to get some gravity because I live during the time of this. What happened? And she said, it was our neighbors. The saddest thing was our neighbors. The day after the votes came and the political violence started, she said, our neighbors came and burnt all our houses. So when they burnt our houses, we were just sleeping outside the perimeter of the church. But then on January the 1st, they came back with gasoline and they hoarded us inside the church. And then they used our mattresses to block in the door and the windows so we couldn't get out. And then the church burned down. And she said, luckily, one of the people from the rebels thought enough enough and started to open the mattresses away from the doorway so they could get out so she managed to get out but as soon as she got outside she realized miriam who was a three-year-old daughter was still inside so she dashed straight back inside and sure enough by the altar where we were actually standing she picked up miriam and took miriam to pull her back outside the church but unfortunately a lady by her own tribe caught her when she was trying to get out again and this lady couldn't move so I think she was just trying to look for help so she grabbed hold of her skirt to stop her leaving so Grace did what any mother would do she just tossed little Miriam as far as her arms could go to get her out into the grass so she could fight with this lady to release herself but unfortunately the mob outside picked up the child and threw the child back into the worst of the furnace so her child who has you know nothing to do with politics at all was burnt alive so I was looking at this poor lady, you know, who didn't have shoes. She was standing there, you know, with barren clothes. And she was just telling me there is a meaning for this. And I was telling her, no, no, there's no meaning for this. And she said, yes, yes, God knows there is a meaning why this happened. And I'm thinking, like, oh, what kind of belief do you have? You know, I, for me, I was just like, this is mad hooligans, drunken hooligans. She said, no, 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 there is a meaning. And I'm thinking, like, what is the meaning? So I went back into the town and I thought, what do I do? Because... 
one of the little boys who'd been caught inside the church, there was a picture of him in the newspaper with a little quote and it said, all I want is a bicycle. He was covered in burns. So I bought a bicycle for him, taken it from the supermarket, taken it to the hospital. But when I came out of the hospital, there were idlers on the street and they were saying, you're a bad man. What about our kids down in Nairobi who were caught in the prisoner of war camps down there? Not prisoner of war, you understand, you know, the refugee camps. Right. And so I said, I don't care, you know, what tribe this boy is from, awareness. All I saw was a boy in pain and he wanted a bicycle. So if I can help him in that little way, let me just do that. But it was, I could see it was causing so much friction. There was so much, you know, hot air still around that I realized if I build up the church or do anything for this community, I'm just going to be seen as totally the bad guy. But I was trying to work out what do you do in this situation? You know, how do I help? And by the weirdest coincidence, when I came into town, I stopped at the cafe it's owned by a guy called Moses Tanui, who'd won the 100th Boston Marathon. I used to train with him when he was training for the, that race back in 1996 in Kenya. So I was hoping to actually chat with Moses, but instead my friend Peter came in, and Peter was holding a manuscript in his hand like a proposal, and he just dropped it on the table and said, like, ha, do you want to do this? And then he pushed it aside and started talking about Nairobi property prices. So I said, Peter, you know, what, what, what is that? He just said, ah, it's nothing. I said, come on, what is it? He said, well, can you believe I wanted to help, you know, because everyone at one time, you know, they wanted to do something. He said, I wanted to help. So I asked the local doctor, you know, can I do like a $500 donation or something like this? Can you believe the doctor gave me a $15 million project to build a children's hospital? Ridiculous. You know, he was about to throw it away in the garbage. But I suddenly thought, huh, maybe, you know, that proposes for me. You know, a hospital is a place where you go for love and healing. And you don't ask what tribe you're from. You don't ask what sex, race, religion. And I thought, hmm, after my own experiences, you know, eight years ago, running to a medical clinic and actually getting no help at all. It took me 11 days to get out of Africa and I saw firsthand what an African have to go through. And then I remember being a child, I fell out the back of the theater and crashed my arm and had the exact opposite experience. I thought all these life experiences and then getting this proposal on this very morning of the most, you know, horrible morning that's been going on. So that's how I started to build the children's hospital. As simple as that. Wow. Um, as simple as that. <laughs> Do you always end that story with as simple as that? Because that is very know, far from simple. It just seemed to make sense. It just seemed to. And let me tell you, I had problems because I had never really fundraised in my life and now I had to fundraise for a big project. Right. So now that but now the hospital is open and I, you, you can take uh, 400 patients. And how many patients did the hospital see last year? Um, about 130,000. Wow. It's probably it's a really really busy facility, right. and half the reason is that is it's built like a private hospital. And when we first built it, a lot of the Kenyans were like, "Whoa, this!" You know, mothers were not taking their children there at first because they were scared. They said, "This building is too nice to be," because basically in the public world in Kenya, they build the cheapest possible. They build like a cigar box. Everything is shaped like that because that's the cheapest way to build. Now, if you look at my hospital, it's built like uh, a TriStar, mm-hmm. which is more expensive because you have to run piping down three ways rather than one. But it allows for much more airflow. And I'd visited a lot of hospitals when I was walking around in Africa, going to different hospitals to actually see, you know, which ones in Tanzania and places like, to see what the hospitals are like. And most of the hospitals were very smelly. And in the center of the hospital, you could just imagine how the diseases just, you know, the disease would germinate and... Mm-hmm. Brew up almost. Right, yeah. So I decided if I can make it have as much airflow as possible and then natural light too. You know, I don't like fluorescent light. So 
I was thinking like if I can use natural light. So you know, obviously when you're healing, not having flickering lights and stuff, and then having fresh air. And if you have twelve breezes per minute, you actually cut down on the chances of getting another disease. Hmm. So, but then as soon as people realize, yes, wow, this is a public, it is a hospital. So then we became flooded up wow. until today, and we've had patients from Uganda, we've had patients from Tanzania, from Burundi, from Rwanda, from Southern Sudan. So. We have a catchment area of 20 million just inside Kenya, but it's gone beyond. Wow. So, uh, in the four years that it's been open, mm-hmm. um, who, are the, who are some of the patients that, you can, that you've met or that kind of uh, are the highlights maybe of some of the people that, that have been able to come into the hospital? It's been a very emotional experience because, to be honest, you know, I, I told the story of how I, I built it and I thought what I'd do is I'd build it and I'd move on. You know, I've also built some schools and usually what I do with that school is I don't really stay that involved. Once the school is open, then mm-hmm. I'm on to the next project. I thought the hospital would be the same. I didn't realize what an emotional roller coaster a hospital would be actually, because I start to get to know the patients. And there's good stories and there's bad stories. You know, I can tell you some very sad ones about a lady called a uh, girl, sorry, ten-year-old Jackie. Mm-hmm. And she was hit by her stepmother, and she broke a neck. And then when we operated on her, when she came out of uh, anesthesia she couldn't move the bottom part of her body and long story short she died but it was it was very traumatic and it was very very sad and, you know she had actually become a massive she lived at the hospital for six months so she'd become you know a friend we were about to adopt her because you know her parents didn't want her and even when she was sick in hospital they wouldn't even come and visit her even when and we had a priest come because she wanted to be baptized and she was in ICU and she could only move one eye still they wouldn't come and come and see her so, you know, there were harrowing cases that you just can't believe how bad they are. But there's happy ones, too. There was one girl called Naretu, who I actually saw last week. And Naretu, 2016 in November, she was lying on a bed in northern Kenya in a medical clinic. And her mother told me, she said, every single day she would ask the doctors, how is my daughter doing? And she said, they diagnosed only with the eyes. She said, there was no equipment, no anything. And the doctors said, well, she's not doing well. You know, her hair was falling out, her glands were swelling. She was getting sicker and sicker. So the mother, Priscilla, was asking people, what do I do? What do I do? And lady said, there's a hospital called Shoe for Africa. You should take her there. So she ran home and she'd been there living at the hospital for one month. And when she got home, she'd found her cows had been stolen. She'd left them with a farm boy, but he hadn't been able to overcome the thief. So she sold her last chickens and got $20. With her twenty dollars, then she took communal transport for three days to travel down to one hospital. And when she arrived, the child in her arms—this was in uh, December now—the doctors looked at her and immediately realized she had leukemia and blood cancer. So, okay, we start treating her, but after one week, nothing. After the next week, nothing. She wasn't responding to the medicines. So the doctors told Priscilla and said, "I'm sorry, you know." Just prepare. This is your last daughter. Yeah, your daughter's last Christmas. She's just prepare yourself. You know, she hasn't got much time. Right. So Priscilla had twenty dollars from selling her chickens. Now she only had five dollars left after the travel had taken fifteen dollars. So with the last five dollars, she went out and bought bought hair braids so she could braid because her daughter had lost her hair. So she braided with beautiful braids, and she just said, "Let her be beautiful when she goes to God." Okay. Now, at the time of Christmas, we have a lot of visitors coming to the hospital. So every day, you know, for instance, the deputy governor was coming and he was bringing Vaseline and milk. And Priscilla, who lives in northern Kenya, wasn't used to getting all these gifts and things. She goes, like, every day, you know, blah, blah, blah. So 
it's amazing. People are coming, they're starting to take an interest. And then we have a party every year on the day before Christmas. And the world's most fantastic marathon runner, Elliot Kipchoge, who's a world record holder, he's an Olympic champion, he's, he's won 12 of the 13 races that he's ever run in the marathon. He came to the hospital and he was spending a lot of time with Naretu and giving her presents. And the local, not the local, the national uh, newspaper, the Daily Nation, took a picture. So on Christmas Day, there was a big picture of Naretu and Elliot, you know, Elliot giving her a piece of cake and then her taking the cake like this. And Priscilla was like amazed. She was like, oh, this is wonderful to do. Now she's got these gifts and now she's famous because that. Uh, and amazing, the week after, she went in for her tests and now her body's now responding to the medicine. So she got better and now, two years later, she's cancer clear. Oh my God. So we have amazing stories like that. that the, you know, you see the real depths of somebody on the lips of the grave, just about to fall in. Right. And then, you know, somehow, not even responding to medicine, responding to the care of having people. Right. So a lot of stories like that, it's very touching. Yeah, I bet. So, Is there any other, any other stories that jump out to you when you think about the hospital in the last five years? Of, uh, we got a donation from some people actually here in New York, some schoolboys in French school on the Upper East Side, and to build a, a soccer field. And so we decided, okay, let's, let's have a little football match. And then a friend of mine, her brother is one of the coaches at Hull City FC, which is uh, an English. Mm -hmm. They were actually in the Premier, but now they got demoted, I think. Right. So she had brought the junior kits from them. So my wife went up to the wards and she just picked uh, a football team that we could have to come and play and have like a celebration as we broke ground on this little AstroTurf that we're going to do, AstroTurf field. And so she picked up a team just randomly from volunteers who wanted to play. But out of the team, we had 13 players and 11 of them were cancer patients. And when they were playing on the field, it just struck me the stat that I'd heard a couple of years before, but they hadn't really acted upon it. And one of the top doctors in Kenya had told me nine out of 10 kids who were diagnosed with cancers are dying now in East Africa. So as I was uh, sitting watching this match go, I realized my whole team has now disappeared. If the stats are true, and obviously at our hospital, we have better odds in the whole of uh, East Africa, but nine out of 10, I mean, that's the whole team. And that's when I realized I wasn't doing enough for these kids. So I realized now my goal is now to build a, a kids' cancer hospital. And can you believe there isn't one in the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa? And when I say there isn't one, what I mean then is that kids just go into a, a general hospital. There's no isolation. And if you get chemo treatment, you have no immune system. So as soon as you go back into a hospital with all those germs floating around, mm -hmm. you don't stand a chance. And maybe that's why 9 out of 10. Even if you go home, I mean, the average patient that we have in our hospital doesn't have running water at home, doesn't have cleanliness. So it's a death sentence either way. Right. So that's, you know, that motivated me now to start my new goal. So hopefully next year we're going to start breaking ground on uh, the Kids Cancer Hospital. Well, this is amazing. It's just going to be a very tough edit, this, uh, this particular interview. But this has been amazing to, to hear these stories. And yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for the time.
it's tough because we are so blessed. I mean, I feel the same way when I when I was in Peru and just seeing the massive disparity and the difference between what we have and what they have and it's what makes me want to leave this country. Um, I don't know, like you're you're fresh out of school, Brandon, what like does that make you feel like you just want to flee or does that make you feel like So I, I definitely have mixed feelings about it. Um, a lot of a lot of that was devastating. People turning on people, um, children kind of getting caught in the crossfires. I've been in hospitals that I don't think have the best facilities, but it sounds like it's a place you go to die in you know in other countries, and that's really hard to hear. Um, but I think what's so beautiful about his story is he's trying to kind of make the hospital a place <clears throat> of life, of of the living. Um, so it gives me hope in the sense that there are people who can make a difference. And it kind of inspires me as well to take whatever I learned here and also not necessarily flee, but, <laughs> but uh, gain as much experience as I can so I can make an impact. Um, I, I have a, a, a you know, professor or doctor who actually started a hospital in Burundi. Um, and he was trying to like, you know, Kenya, it sounds like, has such a large catchment area of people, and Burundi is one of the poorest countries in Africa. Um, and he's, he's trying to create something sustainable. He's trying to create a hospital there so that it's not like what we hear if you go, you do a small project, and you leave, but you yeah. create something. Um, something that serves the community way after you're gone, right? Yeah. That's like the idea. As a teacher, when I hear about people starting schools in Africa, a uh, photocopy machine is my lifeline. That is, without a photocopy machine, American schools come to a grinding halt. Mm. So, um, in Africa, they don't even have a photocopy machine to begin with, so then they have to like start at that level. And I, that mm. blows my mind. So, um, I mean, what's, what's the sort of medical version of that oh from goodness. what you're hearing in this story? What I take for granted is yeah. lab technicians. Uh, you can send off a blood sample, a urine sample, and you're getting those results back of what it is in, in a matter of minutes. Yeah. Whereas if you go to a developing country, you have to be that person. I mean, there's no, there isn't that ancillary staff. So I think maybe that as well. There's you're doing it all yourself. Logistically, mm -hmm. uh, like the systems that are in place in the hospital, it's unreal. I mean, you think about. You have your physicians and your nurses and your patient, and that seems relatively obvious, but then you have nutritionists that have, you know, they're also nine to five jobs, 40 hours a week, and they're contributing to patients. And then you have pharmacists on top of that, mixing meds and delivering meds and um, figuring out all the interactions and the complications among the other meds. Then you have lab technicians, and then you have um, the whole dietary team, like everyone that's delivering the food and preparing the food, and that's a full-time thing. And then you have aid, like nursing aides. So this is interesting. So you're saying, like, if you just had like the, the greatest surgeon in the world is working in this hospital, oh they're only they need you need it. You need an entire structure of people of skills, totally. like surrounding. So you can't do this yeah. as a person going in and saying, "Oh, I'm a doctor. I can do this." You are whatever wherever you are in the hospital, you're reliant on the skills of everyone around you. Medical care is totally it's completely team-based. Yeah. I mean, everyone relies on everyone else. Yeah. Um, to give that, you know, holistic mm -hmm. um, care of the patient. I will say one of the things he mentioned to me that I don't think came up in the interview is um, where that hospital is. I think it actually is close to some other 
facilities. So they are trying to like bounce, you know, these things off each other and build up that particular area so it has more of the things that I think you're yeah. you're referring to. Like comparing it to mobile medical clinics I've seen in Peru where you show up with basic supplies, basic medications, you have a stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff and maybe something to measure blood glucose. And otherwise you're going strictly off of what you can see. Um, I mean, even that feels like a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, my mind is kind of blown right now. I can't even imagine right. the amount of work that went into this. One of the things I wanted to hear is the last time we talked in a recorded sense, uh, yeah. Melissa, you had four years of building up yeah. purses, um, selling purses, raising money for this trip. And I talked to you like kind of right before you went. Yeah. So this might be a good chance for you to tell us a little bit about that trip to Peru with Purses for Nurses. Wow. It shifted a lot of things for me, perspective-wise. Um, when I first started the organization, I really thought that we were, you know, I kind of had this like grandiose idea that we were going to be able to swoop in and like revolutionize healthcare in another country. Um I had a lot of like big dreams for a little person <laughs> and um, you know, really getting on the ground and having spent close to two months in different parts of Peru and doing these mobile medical clinics and seeing how things really work and connecting with people on a real level um, really shifts a what you realize you're capable of alone and b what your mission is. I mean, our mission shifted dramatically into being really focused on logistics and systems and, and, you know, how can we make a difference and like into really meeting people on an individual level. And there are a handful of people that we connected with in Peru patients that really stick out in my mind and just being able to make tiny changes in the lives of those people, I think kind of carries a lot more weight than the big picture now. And we've really pivoted our attention towards addressing those individual needs and addressing people on a very human level. I think Brandon might need some attention. (laughs) 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 Tuberculosis. Oh, okay. That's good. Good. So, so to give you some scope, um, yeah, we fundraised and, you know, we're building up the organization and collecting bags and selling bags and doing all of our work here in the States for about four years um, in order to send three nurses abroad and a videographer to help capture everything that we did, or at least a chunk of some of the beautiful work we did. And we were able to serve um, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 people. And that varies, of course, you know, we, we don't have the exact number because a lot of people came in with families. You see mothers with their kids, and um, people kind of come and go and like flow throughout the clinic sure. throughout the day. And that was in only about eight days. Um, and we visited urban areas as we as well as rural areas. We saw some people that had never met a physician before. Um, we saw other people that had been to multiple doctors and specialists um, that just couldn't figure out a solution to their problem. Um, But overall, I feel that a lot of what is needed in these other countries isn't so much the influence of Western medicine, which I think there's kind of this common belief in philanthropy, especially in medical philanthropy right now, that we're going to go into this other country, we're going to tell them everything we know, they're going to implement it, and they're going to be better off. 
And a lot of what we figured out as a team while we were there was that it's not about like none of the work of philanthropy should be about going in and forcing your agenda on another community because we know so little about the way they live day to day and we're literally showing up and just telling them how it should be and then leaving without any respect for the culture that's in place. Um, let alone all of their day to day, like their nutrition, like their access to different foods is totally different than ours. Their access to medications and supplies is totally different than ours. And their customs are, are, you know, they, they vary radically. So taking all of that into account and really having a holistic approach to healthcare is so multifaceted that no matter how many people we treated, <laughs> whether it was 600 or a thousand or 10,000, um, it's not good enough unless we're meeting people where they're at and we're actually respecting everything they already have in place and treating them from that perspective. Um, so that's really given us a lot of reason to pivot how we're approaching healthcare going forward. Hmm. Um, and there's an awesome video on our website about some of the cool people we met and some of the cool things we did. That's at PursesForNurses.org. And um, that will give you a really nice picture of what we were able to do and um, some of the magic that occurred in that week. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I would uh, I would also say your Instagram page was oh, full yeah. of really great <laughs> pictures as well. You should... Uh, Please don't donate I'll, right now, though. We have so many bags. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the things that came out of that last interview and some of the things that you came up with in our discussion here is going to really lead us into the last interview. So, yeah, let's jump into that. Let's do it. Sorry. Okay, so I am here with Luana DeAngelis, who is the founder and chief visionary officer of You Can Thrive. Thank you for being on the podcast and taking a few minutes. Thanks for having me. So, um, uh, first off, I guess, just uh, quickly tell me, what is You Can Thrive? You Can Thrive is a holistic paradigm that focuses on people with cancer to provide them the holistic resources and integrative services that they need the most when they can afford them the least. We combine patient navigation supportive care like acupuncture, massage, reflexology, aromatherapy with nutritional counseling and educational resources so that they can have the best outcome regardless of their income. And we are now working this evidence-based paradigm into a corporate care paradigm which will be a socially responsible sustainability model that will 50% of the corporate sales will go back to feed the people with cancer free services. Mm-hmm. This organization is really tied to your own kind of journey through and your experience. So so walk us through what you went through that led you to start You Can Thrive. So I come from a multi-generational background of women in natural health. And though I didn't choose to be in the healing health field. I was an artist and a musician and an entrepreneur, and I was diagnosed with cancer uh, six months after I got married at 35 years old. 
And I was super aware of a lot of the funding that was out there. There was all this pink ribbon stuff. And um, when I started seeking resources as an artist, musician, entrepreneur who was up and coming but didn't have a lot of resources at my disposal, I found some support groups which were not really ideal for someone who was young. Uh, because it was mostly people who had been through the ringer for a long time and were talking about things that I did not want to hear. And so I was now a pissed off young breast cancer survivor. And I started looking at what I knew to be good practices in how to heal long term. And I implemented those in my own routine and started reaching out to the community to find those resources affordably and told my story. And in doing so, I came across an acupuncturist whose two of his sisters had been diagnosed. And he said, I want to help you come to my office. And I showed up with, you know, my notebook and my business suit and I would, and he knew he was getting pitched (laughs) (laughs) and he said, I would like to give you free acupuncture. And I said, I don't want to take anything that my sisters don't also get behind me. And he said, what do you want? And I said, I want you to give me your clinic on Sundays and I want to open a center for people with cancer so that they can get the resources they need. And he said, okay. So he gave me his time in his center on Sundays and we started and quickly it grew and it just kept growing. We started doing many, many different types of resources after that. Right. Medicine is so scientifically driven, but it really needs, and I think it's becoming more clear uh, that it needs a mental health component as well. And I think you're adding, you're kind of filling in a hole um, that, that needs to be filled that not many people are are touching on. Is that fair? Absolutely. I feel what You Can Thrive does is all the stuff that the mainstream usual care forgets, leaves out, doesn't have any concept of because it's not stuff that's profitable and it's more or less a feminine paradigm of healing. So it's more about the mind, body, spirit. It's, it's what is the person feeling and how are those feelings expressing through your, their cellular genetics? What is the person taking in, in their environment insofar as toxicities, toxic people, toxic chemicals, and how are they able to process those? What are their individual risk factors and how can we ameliorate the those within their environment? How can we negate some of that so they can have a sense of empowerment, which is what's going to improve their mental health? Because when I was diagnosed, it felt like there was an ax hanging over my head. Here I am 35 years old and I have to live the rest of my life. How long am I going to live? And you know, basically the the care that was being offered me wasn't really care. It was sick care, not health care. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, you know, cut, burn, and poison. And what about all the things that I knew about healing that was rebuild, restore, renew, rejuvenate, and and, you know, revamp your outlook on life? And that's just something that our current paradigm is not set up to deal with. It's actually set up to exclude that aspect of the person. And I think that it 
comes down to this feminine and masculine idea of healing. So there is like the yin and the yang in healing. And since, you know, I've been running an acupuncture center for so many years, I look at this Chinese model of the, the male and the female, the yin and the yang, the black and the white. And what I see in our current medical model is that that male, you know, cut, burn and poison model that attacks the symptom is very needed. And there's nothing wrong with it to per, per se, but it doesn't address the feminine aspect and more or less dumbs down, has always dumbed down the feminine aspect of healing, which is more soft, more gentle, more, more inclusive uh, and more spiritual. And so I felt that we needed to lift that feminine aspect of healing up to equal importance of, of usual care because epigenetics is showing us that it's every bit as important, if not more important, uh, what you're putting into your body and what cellular expression, what emotions you're expressing, which is going to actually be above genetics in how your cells respond. Right. You, you just told me actually before we started recording that this is going to be the 15th year or you're on the verge of your 15th anniversary? Yes, it's 14 years and next year we're going to be celebrating 15 years since we began working with people with cancer. You had told me about a uh, someone who came into your clinic named Chayo. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about her experience and how you, how you can thrive uh, helped her? She stands out for me because she had a very... Uh, unusual presentation, a very aggressive presentation. Uh, Her disease was spreading across her skin, up her throat, all across her chest, pussing and oozing, and it was just terrifying. Hmm. And it was like a dragon that was consuming her. And she came in with these big brown eyes and looked at me with this sadness, and she said, the doctors say that I'm not going to make it. And I felt such love and compassion for her. Like I would have done anything to try to keep her here and to take that from her. She was very talented photographer and she was just a beautiful person. And we started working with her. And when she first came, she couldn't take her coat off. She was in constant pain. She was bald over and over again in the four years or so that we worked with her. She kept going back to chemo and having to get all this treatment, but you would see her come in and we had a 10,000 square foot center running in Union Square and it was all free every week uh, by donation. People could come and we gave away about, uh, about 150 treatments a day of acupuncture, reflexology, massage, nutritional counseling, patient navigation, and exercise. So she would come in in the morning and meditate with us and exercise a little bit. And then she would get a, you know, a reflexology treatment. And then she would come in the waiting room and you would see her start to come back to life. And that was beautiful to me. And she would say to her boyfriend, who is still a friend and supporter of our organization, if I can just make it to Sunday, If I can just make it to Sunday, I know I'll be okay. And he said he saw her do that for three years, that if she could just make it to Sunday and that every Sunday she would go home a different person. And that was because of all the community members that were putting their hands on her. And that was, to me, a very beautiful story. And even though she did succumb in the end, uh, 
we made that journey hopeful for her and we made that journey bearable for her and that's to me the true meaning of charity selfless love wow who else when you reflect on those uh these 14 years who else jumps to your mind I had no experience in nonprofit when I started You Can Thrive. I had an overwhelming desire to help. And it was really on behalf of the Divine Mother because I felt that there was an imbalance again in our system and in our uh, in every aspect of our society where the the feminine needs to be lifted up. And so I always think of the mothers. I always think of these terrified young mothers who are afraid of not being there for their children, especially even the single mothers. Um, And so I think when I first started, like in 2005, I met a young mother who had a very aggressive cancer. And we worked together and I did advocacy with her and I helped her to research and to find out what was the real deal of the treatment she was going to be undergoing and that she was looking at making, at making choices. And I told her, this is a choice. This is not you just taking whatever it is that they throw at you. This is you really being your own best advocate and researching and finding out what's going to be the, the least destructive for the most benefit. And she did such an amazing job at that. And before long, she was bringing me all of this great information and she had an amazing outcome and she's still fine to this day. And her daughter is getting all these awards and it's just amazing to see all these years later, the people that thrive. And, and then I also think of like Kristen, you know, one of the most beautiful young 30 something year olds who never even found a lump and it was already spread through her whole body and she was only 34 years old and she had a genetic diagnosis, which is rare. It's not that it's not that common and hers was like a bird. It just flew away before she ever found a lump. And then being there with her, with her sweet voice and her coming to the center every week and being there for other women was just so inspiring to watch how much she helped you can thrive with our branding, with our naming of all of our different aspects of the program, how much a part of it that these, all of these young thrivers were, uh, that, that I stand on their shoulders all these years later. And I never forget them. Anytime I get discouraged or sad, I think about all the women that came before me and how much they mean to me and how I'm holding up this community on their behalf and on behalf of the women who are yet to be diagnosed. Wow. Um, and you kind of made me think of something. So you, um, there's a lot of volunteers that work in with you as well, right? So, I mean, obviously these are extremely powerful stories. Is there any volunteer that you can think of that, that you know, their experience of, of what they uh, come out of? The volunteers are the lifeblood of this organization. Our organization has sustained itself in an arena that is completely innovative for many years with very little funding. We were running a $1.2 million, 10,000 square foot center on less than $100,000 a year. So every dollar that's donated turns into 12 effectively because of those volunteers. Because everyone is giving their time 
that's the 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 moment that was most overwhelming to me in this memory is looking around and seeing all of these volunteers working together and we've done it in so many different inceptions because we don't have general operating support because that's the way nonprofits run they run on a starvation life cycle because we're the grants that are, are out there, which are very few and far between for supportive care, do not cover general operating support. So there's not money to pay the rent or to pay mm. um, to keep the doors open and the lights on. So that's always been donated. So those people that support the donated space and then those volunteers who come in and give time for free. Right. And I remember looking around in, in these different inceptions that we had. Many times, each volunteer went behind closed doors with, with, with a, a member, and then the member would come out feeling better. But then we ended up in this 10,000-square-foot space with this huge room, and there was 20 tables, and I watched three shifts of acupuncture, three shifts of massage, three shifts of reflexology, three shifts of Reiki, three shifts of nutritional counselors. And most of them, except the nutritional counselors, are working together in this big room with all of these people on tables. And I was like, how is this going to work? Everyone's going to bother each other. There was a symphony of snoring. And I watched the volunteers working together. And I watched the, the Reiki master come over to the acupuncturist and say, hey, I felt this when I had my hands on her. And I watched the look on the face of the acupuncturist drop and say, I just felt the same thing in her pulses. And I saw this profound respect start to develop between them and this report that they don't usually get when they work alone behind closed doors one-on-one -on -one with people. And so they started being inspired by each other and by this community of people working for their neighbors, people working to make life better, using our merit for the good of others. And that's been truly inspiring for me. So I would be nothing without these volunteers. And I, yes, I've kept it rolling all these years and I've stayed consistent. And volunteers move through in three years or so. You know, there's some that has, have been around since 2007, you know, and have been there since our first center opened. But those volunteer and, and and what one thing that I've seen develop is that we've started to see that the future doctor is a multidisciplinary integrative practitioner. And that's what the volunteers came to me when they said, You've changed my life. Because what I saw you doing at You Can Thrive made me a practitioner that knew that I needed to not just be an oncology nurse but a Reiki master and an acupuncturist and understand nutrition. And that's the future of the doctor. The, the, the next doctor, the epigenetic doctor, the one that helps them, us restructure is going to be a multi, multidisciplinary holistic practitioner. And so that's been inspiring to me is to watch all these volunteers grow because of their work at You Can Thrive as well. Wow. Yeah, I bet. I can't imagine. Wow. This has been, this has been fantastic. I feel like this interview is flying by, but before I, uh, wind it down. Is there anything that I haven't asked about and you think like, oh, I really want to mention this or talk about this person? This one moment, this most inspiring moment that I had during this time when we were in Union Square before Hurricane Sandy and we had this big, beautiful space that was donated and all of these volunteers were working together in one room so beautifully helping each other and there was a symphony of snoring and I, I, I thought it's never going to work in this room 
And what I saw was that the women were more supported by the other women next to them, that the the group healing experience was so much more powerful than, than, and so much more supportive than the individual healing on their own. And that the practitioners were high-fiving each other and doing little dances while all of the women were snoring on the tables around them. And that was a beautiful moment. And I remember going to the very back of the room because I was just so overwhelmed with tears coming to my eyes and saying, I don't even know how I got to be a part of this, much less the mama, Hmm. you know? So that moment was like, and I'll never forget that moment. It was overwhelming. And it happened to me almost every week because it was so close to God being in the space with all these people doing this beautiful work on behalf of the all, on behalf of just using their merit for the, for society. And I would just have to go to the back of the room and put my head in my hands and just cry. Very good. Well, this has been such a, a nice conversation and, um, and such some powerful stories. So thank you for sharing. say coming out of this, but I also want to just start by saying it was interesting watching this whole uh, episode, watching both of you react to a lot of these stories, because I feel like in a lot of ways, there's a lot of dramatic stories, but you must deal with this professionally a lot, yet you're still kind of affected by, you know, hearing stories about it. And I was just, um, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. I was thinking about just some patients that I have encountered, um, Specifically, I mean, just I mean the fact that she, you know, is dealing with breast cancer. I just a couple months ago had a patient who had no metastasis, and I just kept thinking about her and a little bit how, as a medical student, the the family kept looking to me because the doctors were too busy to kind of tell them more, Um, and I just felt so thankful for for kind of how I've been able to tied together kind of the scientific and more emotional aspects of medicine. I'm just mm-hmm. very thankful for my education and just every, everything. There's so many, there's just a flood of emotions when I was around us. Yeah, it's hard not to carry, and maybe it's a good thing that we do this, but like to carry your emotions from certain patient experiences into others. If I have a patient that I pour my heart and soul into who dies of a liver disease or like from personal experience, my mom passed away of cancer last year. If I meet someone with that type of cancer, it's going to be extremely difficult not to bring all of what comes with that into my care of that new person. And in ways that's good because you want that emotional tie, like you want an emotional tie that's secure. You know, you don't want it to be anxious. You don't want it to be um, avoidant. You want it to be a very secure, healthy emotional tie to where you can care for that person like they're your mother without all that baggage of, oh my God, this is my mom. And if I screw it up and and like, you know, all that, the story that comes with it. Um, and I think in the beginning, it's extremely hard to, to get to that happy balance where you don't cut yourself off from the person in front of you, but you also don't, aren't so invested that you carry it with you everywhere for, you know, six months. Um, what do you think of uh, the mission of You Can Thrive. I'm just like, I'm so moved. Right. You started I'm, talking before we I like even got to I couldn't help this. myself. I was like, preach. I was snapping. <laughs> I was, 
I love her. I have to meet her and spend time with her. She's, I, I, that whole, everything about like the feminine energy and I never quite knew how to define it, but like I could see very clearly that there was this massive gap in healthcare. Um, you know, even as blessed as we are in this country to have so much amazing scientific advancements and like all the best technology in a lot of ways anyway, and some of the best medications and access to almost everything you could want. We are so lacking in the nurturing aspect of healthcare. And it never occurred to me that like a lot of what was lacking is like a very feminine side. It's like the holistic, it's taking in the whole person. It's, you know, social workers look at people's home lives and look at people's uh, support systems and things like that. But also their self-care and their, you know, nutrition looks at their diet. But then what about like their specific self-care practices and the ways in which um, they address their own health and they perceive their own health and the ways that they approach getting better when they need something. And like all of these little things like acupuncture, massage, I just, it's, it's even new for me in the last few years of my life, uncovering all the different ways in which I can take care of myself and how I can treat myself before I go to the hospital and how I can, you know, kind of tinker with my own, um, health, healthcare and self-care. And, oh, I was just so inspired by, by what they do and by what she started and her approach. And it just resonates so deeply with me. I want to, I want to pull that into everything that I do. Brandon, I, I know you kind of reacted to the, uh, uh, what did she say? Um, Cut, cut and burn. There yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah, you remember it better than I me. Do. So you acknowledge that that was like that kind of hit with you a little bit. I think I laughed a little bit when I heard that because um, I feel like in a way that's what medicine was, okay. and not where medicine is going. Um, but I've definitely seen that, and I've seen people like that um, where it's just you know, deal with the symptoms. Um, and when someone gets, let's say, a cancer diagnosis, there's so much more than the physical symptoms um, that they're experiencing. I mean, if you get a cancer diagnosis, I mean, there must be depression that follows with that. There must be so much else that affects you uh, emotionally. Um, and so I hear that, and I just look at my own education that I've gone through for the past four years. Um, I, this is so relatable, but in the past four years, I you know, we are taught evidence-based medicine. Everything should be based on fact. But then, you know, curriculums are moving towards more getting to know someone, getting to know, you know, kind of meeting them, kind of what you were saying, you know, in your mission to Peru is kind of meeting people where they are a little bit more. Um, and also, you know, acupuncture and, you know, all these different ways of healing um, are also entering this evidence-based sphere. Um, that there is, you know, there is more data that's related to this. And I don't, I don't want to make it too much about, you know, something that's more spiritual and meaning data, but I mean, that is something that's happening. No, but that's cute. Totally. That's really interesting. So can you point to anything in your classes or anything or, or your experiences where you can say like they brought this up? So in my fourth year, there was an elective created where you could actually um, shadow an acupuncturist mm -hmm. um, and get to learn a little bit more about their practices um, because they are finding that there is more of a relation between, you know, these types of healing and, and patients getting better, people getting better. Um, so I would say that's one way that, the, you know, you know, schools are really um, receptive to making that holistic view and training the future practitioner, kind of like what I was saying, to encompass more than just um, 
you know, the medical aspect of it. How does this interview tie in with how you feel about nursing coming out of your trip? Well, I definitely felt a shift in Peru away from the Western medicine approach and into a more holistic approach, um, recognizing that so much of the care we provide as nurses specifically is meant to be more nurturing and meant to be more emotional, uh, meant to be more hands-on. I can think of one patient in particular where this really hit hard, and that was a woman named Rosa who came in and, you know, we got to talking to her and her daughter and her two grandsons and like figuring out everything that was going on in their family and all the issues medically that they were facing. And, um, at one point they brought up the patriarch of their family as well, who they had to leave at home because, um, his legs were so swollen from a, I think a prostate cancer diagnosis and a slew of other issues that he couldn't leave home. And they were trying to figure out how we could help treat him from the clinic um, and the whole thing was, was quite complicated and we did come up with some solutions on that front, but more importantly, we also found that as Rosa was telling us all of this, she was clearly just, her body language was very tense. She looked like she was fighting back tears the whole time. She, it felt like there was a lot she wasn't saying. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's, you know, among Latin cultures, there's kind of this machismo approach of even among the women where, you know, they're very resilient and they just you know, you take it, you deal with it, it's yours, and the emotional stuff is for you to handle. Um, and at least in this respect, like, she was very unwilling to kind of broach the emotional side of it until we asked her very directly, how is this affecting you? Mm. And, you know, she had back pain and headaches and all these different physical issues, but it was like, no, emotionally, how is this affecting you? And she just completely broke down in front of us. And, you know, all of her emotions spilled out. And How did you know she, to ask that question? I just, it, again, it's that human connection. It's something that you can't see on paper. Um, you have to look someone in the eyes and you have to talk to them and you have to really connect with them and really be receptive, as Brandon said, and open and listening with your whole being. It's not just, you know, sitting there scribbling on your notepad and like listening to all the things, you know, okay, she has a cough, she has a back pain, she has, no, no, it's like you have to look at them and you have to really take in like what are they doing with their body and emotionally like what does, what does this person look like? And... I think bringing that into healthcare into all aspects and you know, it sounds like it's coming a little bit more into medicine. It's coming a little bit more into nursing, but it's like an elective. It's like a side piece. It's like a, you know, it's something that's um, like on the fringes of the whole. And I think it needs to be a half of the whole wow. really taking in like this person is as emotional and that's affecting their symptoms just as much as they are like the physical issues, like maybe their diabetes or hypertension or what have you. Um, and yeah, that like really seeing it live in front of me and, and seeing the shift in how we were able to take care of her after we uncovered that was just a massive, like these people need emotional support and they need a community and they need, um, all those holistic bits just as much as they need the medications and the physical therapy and, um, the surgery. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's become really important to us. Cool. I just love the name of the organization um, mm -hmm. just because when you get a medical diagnosis um, when you're when you're sick all you think about is surviving I mean that's the word that mm -hmm. comes to mind and just this aspect of you should really be thriving I think that's just that's so powerful that really mm -hmm. struck me oh cool snaps <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great pickup 
before we finish up, I just want to mention one thing. So I, uh, I put an event together last September. Um, Melissa came to that. And it was a lot of work, and I said, I don't want to put that much work into events anymore. Um, so I've done a monthly meetup, and in fact, we're going to start doing picks since it's nice outside. Uh, and uh, we did a picnic last month, and I'm going to do another picnic. So through this summer, uh, once a month, I'm going to try to do a networking slash picnic. Um, there was a lot of really cool, like, bar, and I love bars, <laughs> but I thought, like, let's do something a little different. So I'm going to try to do some uh, some networking picnics this summer. So check out the um, website or subscribe on Facebook and Instagram or Twitter or whatever and I'll uh, promote that stuff and you can uh, join us so I want to thank you both so much for uh, coming and hanging out and sharing some of your thoughts and expertise and uh, experiences with me yeah and thank everyone for listening hey everyone just a couple things that didn't come up during the episode first off the music was from Institute of Fire Learning so thank you to them and check out the website for links to their music and to hear their full album second off I want to mention that the BYOB picnic will be on June 19th at 6 o'clock you can find that information on Facebook Eventbrite and Meetup lastly I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who participated in this episode that includes uh, MedShare, Shoot for Africa, You Can Thrive. Of course, I also want to say thank you to Melissa Zook from Purses for Nurses and Brandon Alexander. Thanks. That's true, yeah. Yeah, to everyone at home, please uh, excuse Brandon's body language. <laughs>